Pancreatic cancer. The mere mention of it makes us fear the worst. It has a reputation for being a very aggressive cancer. Oftentimes patients are diagnosed with a later stage because it's gone undetected for so long. But while it is an aggressive form of cancer, I think the most important thing is that it's not a death sentence. We have treatments now that we didn't even have 10 years ago. We understand the biology of pancreas cancer so much better now than even a decade ago. Including recent groundbreaking research that could lead to more discoveries in the future. This discovery has profoundly changed the way my team thinks of pancreatic cancer and the types of biomarkers and treatments that we believe are needed in this disease. Learn about pancreatic cancer and related research inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighter's Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. According to the National Cancer Institute, over 57,000 new cases of pancreatic cancer were diagnosed in 2020, accounting for approximately 3% of all new cancer cases in the U.S. While the survival rate is anything but high and fighting pancreatic cancer is indeed challenging, it's not impossible. Dr. Susan Tsai knows this very well. And today, she shares her expert insights into pancreatic cancer. Dr. Sai is an associate professor, Department of Surgery, Division of Surgical Oncology, at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She holds a joint appointment at Freighter's in the Medical College of Wisconsin and the Zablocki VA Medical Center, specializing in cancers of the gastrointestinal tract, including benign and malignant pancreatic tumors. As a starting point, Dr. Sai shares some basic information about what and where the pancreas is in our body. The pancreas is an organ that sits deep in the back of the body within the abdomen, and because it sits in such a posterior part of the abdomen, it's really hard to examine the pancreas in the same way that we can examine the abdomen in general or the extremities. It's really very challenging for clinicians to even feel the pancreas through a normal abdomen, so we really heavily rely on imaging to help give us details about anatomic changes. Then what does the pancreas do in our body? Dr. Sai tells us there are two main functions. The pancreas functions to do two things. 
things. One is they call the endocrine portion, which is to help us regulate our blood sugars. And to do that, the pancreas makes insulin, and that helps respond to high blood sugar levels. On the other side is the exocrine function. What the pancreas does there is to help us better digest our foods. She further explains how the pancreas works in the digestion process. In addition to bile that's made by the liver, the pancreas makes a variety of enzymes that are released at the time that food enters the small intestine. It mixes with the bile and the food and it promotes digestion. Specifically, the enzymes that are most notable are enzymes that help digest fatty foods. Understanding the important endocrine and exocrine functions it performs, is it possible to live without our pancreas? Yes, we certainly can, and sometimes that happens surgically where we remove the entire pancreas, and sometimes that happens as a result of disease. For example, with cystic fibrosis, what happens over time is patients can develop chronic pancreatitis to the point where they have very little functioning pancreas left, and so they're basically without endocrine or exocrine components of their pancreas. So in circumstances where removal of a patient's pancreas does become necessary... Luckily, in this day and age, because we have insulin and because we have enzymes that can replace the function of pancreas enzymes, we can do that and we can largely replace the function of the enzymes with these additional medications. But while living without our pancreas may be possible... It's still not perfect. It's not something that I would endeavor into lightly. Patients who don't have a functioning pancreas or have had a total pancreatectomy, there are other lesser enzymes that are made that help counter-regulate what's happening with the insulin, and when that's lost, it becomes quite challenging to control diabetes. For many of us, myself included, we've commonly heard about the pancreas in the context of cancer. But how common is pancreatic cancer? When people think about the top three cancers in the United States, it's usually lung cancers and then colon cancer, and then after that, either breast or prostate cancer for men or women. But by the year 2030, and even now, pancreas cancer is actually overtaking some of those as the leading cause of cancer-related deaths, even though it's not as common as those other three cancers. To put this in perspective, last year, about 50,000 patients in the United States were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. In comparison, 150,000 or more were diagnosed with colon cancer, and upwards of 200,000 were diagnosed with lung cancer. So in perspective, it's a much more uncommon cancer, but it accounts for more of the cancer mortality in the United States than colon cancer. Which, in part, is why pancreatic cancer is characterized as a particularly aggressive form of cancer. It has a reputation for being a very aggressive cancer. Part of that is that it's kind of a hidden organ. And so oftentimes things may grow in the pancreas without us even knowing it until it grows to a size that it causes problems. So oftentimes patients who are diagnosed with pancreas cancer are diagnosed with a later stage or more advanced cancer because it's gone undetected for so long. Independent of that, Dr. Sai says it's also considered an aggressive form of cancer because... Pancreatic cancers, even in laboratory studies, are shown to be quite aggressive in terms of leaving the local area of where it started in the pancreas and travel to other parts of the body. In other words, they metastasize quite quickly to other parts of the body. Risk factors include other diseases that can be precursors to pancreas cancer. Diseases we often think about contributing to an increased risk of pancreatic cancer are related to chronic states of inflammation. So patients who've had kind of a heavy drinking history have had chronic pancreatitis or inflammation of the pancreas. 
Anytime there's a lot of continued inflammation, we worry about an increased risk of cancer, whether that be in the pancreas or the lungs or the colon. Other risk factors include heavy smoking history. So smokers have two times the risk of non-smokers for developing pancreas cancer. So we're very cognizant about trying to recommend smoking cessation. And having a healthy, balanced diet is always important. These are the hallmarks that you hear from any primary care physician. When you go see your doctor, they'll say, drink in moderation, have a healthy diet, and don't smoke. Still, doing the right things and avoiding the wrong ones can't fully protect one from potentially having pancreatic cancer. For the most part, we don't know what causes pancreas cancer. We know that about 20% of patients walking around may have a simple cyst in their pancreas. And cysts occur everywhere in the body, but cysts in the pancreas are precursor lesions, so small cysts probably are meaningless, but larger cysts, we start to worry about them a little bit. Also concerning, and watched very closely, are patients with a family history for cancer. When I was in medical school, everyone thought pancreas cancers were completely sporadic, but now we know about 10 to 15% of pancreatic cancers are actually hereditary. If two first-degree family members, brother or sister, your mom or your dad, have pancreas cancer, or if three any-degree family members have had pancreas cancer on the same side, like all on the mother's side, that actually puts you in a high-risk category. Or when there's a known genetic predisposition for cancer. The most common genetic mutation may be familiar to a lot of the listeners. It's BRCA2 or BRCA2. This is commonly associated with breast cancer and ovarian cancer, and there actually is an increased risk in pancreas cancer as well if there's another family member who has been affected by pancreas cancer and has a BRCA2 mutation. What if someone knows they are high risk? Is there anything one can do to mitigate their risk for pancreas cancer? For patients who are at higher risk, we actually recommend screening. Now, in general, there's recommendations across the entire population for breast cancer screening, colon cancer screening. In pancreas cancer, because it's just not a very common cancer, it doesn't make sense to screen the entire population. But when you fit a high-risk category, like with family history or a known genetic mutation, those individuals are strongly encouraged to undergo screening. Screening consists of imaging because it's impossible for us to really detect things on physical exam. Screening is important with MRI or some kind of imaging modality and some additional lab tests. And that's done annually, just like you would do with a mammogram. Are there specific populations who are statistically more at risk for pancreas cancer? There are populations that are at higher risk, and most notably, it's the African-American population. Of all the ethnicities, they have the highest risk of developing pancreatic cancer. So screening is particularly important in that population, especially with a significant family history. Next, Dr. Sai says when someone has cancer in their pancreas, where in the organ it occurs can produce different symptoms. It usually begins as a mass, so it doesn't affect the entire organ directly, but the pancreas is attached at one end to the intestine, so that's kind of the head of the pancreas, where all the pancreas juices may start a little bit further away, but they all empty through a common channel into the intestines. So that part we call the head of the pancreas. That's where the bile actually joins from the liver. So if a mass develops in the head of the pancreas, patients will often present with jaundice, symptoms of yellowing of the skin, of the eyes. By comparison, patients who have cancers that occur more upstream from this area, the body or tail of the pancreas, that part is not really connected immediately to anything. So often those tumors end up being slightly larger because they've grown a little bit longer without us knowing anything about it.
And the reason many tumors in the pancreas go undetected is because symptoms can be vague, even non-existent. Unfortunately, with pancreas cancer, it's not a classic symptom that people will be able to say, oh, I have this symptom, I must have pancreas cancer. It's a very vague constellation of symptoms, which often include weight loss, maybe some abdominal discomfort, and then worsening diabetes. In fact, if you have worsening diabetes and you have weight loss, that's very concerning. People often think in the middle age of life, it's very common to develop diabetes, and that's true, but it's usually related to weight gain. We rarely see diabetes in the setting of weight loss. So if you go to your doctor and they say, oh boy, you're kind of pre-diabetic, I want you to work on your diet and lose some weight, usually you can control your diabetes. But if you're losing weight without even trying and then you go to your doctor and they say your blood sugars are out of control, what is going on, that's very worrisome for there being potentially a pancreatic cancer. When it's suspected that something may be going on in a patient's pancreas, how is cancer most commonly diagnosed? we would get is a CT scan, it's an x-ray that takes images in multiple different directions so that we can kind of recreate the interior anatomy of the abdomen. The CT scan for pancreas is a very specific scan. Sometimes people think about where they scan everything. What they don't realize is that for each organ, there's actually an optimal sequence so that we can optimally image that organ. And sometimes it can be missed. So just going to get a CT scan is not enough. Usually we ask for a specific pancreatic protocol CT scan. The reality, however, is that by the time it is diagnosed, pancreatic cancer is commonly in an advanced stage. Unfortunately, the last statistics I saw was about 70% of patients with pancreatic cancer present at the most advanced stage where the cancer has spread. We call that metastatic or stage four is when the cancer that started in the pancreas has already moved to other organs and is disseminated throughout the body. Although sometimes the cancer is detected at an earlier stage. The earlier stages of pancreas cancer, we call them locally advanced when there's a cancer there and may not be technically removable because it involves some important blood vessels or resectable or borderline resectable. Those are the two earlier stages where the cancer is removable. But while staging is important, Dr. Sai says the first priority is making a diagnosis. I always tell people that the most important thing first is to make a diagnosis to confirm that there are cancer cells there because we never would want to treat someone for cancer and have them not have cancer. So the most important thing is to have that tissue diagnosis. And then after that, we do the staging process where we try and determine is the cancer just in one place or if the cancer has started to move to other areas of the body. Following diagnosis, treatment. The staging dictates the treatment. So in stage four, the primary treatment is chemotherapy because we want to be able to deliver the therapy everywhere. In other stages where the cancer isn't widely spread, then the treatments are dependent on where the location is. If the tumor involves blood vessels that we cannot remove surgically, we would always lead with chemotherapy, but we like to provide some local therapy as well, so that's often done with radiation. And then, for early stage pancreas cancer that may be operable, we do all three modalities. So we lead with chemotherapy to treat the cancer that we can see and the cancer that we can't see. And then we fold in the radiation to give us a little extra buffer in the operating room so that when we go in to remove the tumor, we don't leave any cells behind. And then surgery itself. So, is pancreas cancer treatment typically successful? Or is diagnosis a death sentence? That's 
unfortunately propagated in media and movies, but, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had pancreatic cancer for 10 years of her life. So I think the most important thing to realize is that it's not a death sentence. We have treatments now that we didn't even have 10 years ago, and we understand the biology of pancreas cancer so much better now, again, than even a decade ago. Making it possible in many cases, to have quality of life following pancreas cancer treatment. The diagnosis and the treatment is life-changing. But at the same time, our goal is to return people to a quality of life similar to what they had before. When patients finish their treatment, their digestion is a little bit altered. But in general, we'd like to see patients return to work, return to their families, and live with a very reasonable quality of life. And I think that is achievable from what I've seen from my patients. When it comes to pancreas cancer care, Dr. Sai wants everyone in our community to know. Just in their backyard, they have a program that's nationally and internationally known for the treatment of pancreatic cancer that has state-of-the-art capabilities. Patient advocacy organizations say they want to double the survival. Well, within the early stage of pancreas cancer, we have actually already achieved that. We've doubled the survival for pancreas cancer from what it was 10 years ago. If you or someone you know may be at risk for pancreatic cancer, Dr. Sai encourages you to take action. Don't wait. We should emphasize to patients that they shouldn't delay their care. You know, as expedient as we can make the diagnosis and timed treatment, that's really a priority for the treatment of pancreas cancer because it does tend to be aggressive. To learn more, we have a great website for the pancreas cancer program here at MCW. Other resources would be Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, and then the National Pancreas Foundation also has information about pancreatic cancer as well. We'll be sure to post links on our CTSI website, along with the podcast of this show. Our knowledge of pancreatic cancer is ever-increasing due to studies and clinical trials dedicated to finding answers in treating and fighting this deadly disease. One such study comes from Temple Health at Temple University in Philadelphia, where a researcher and her team recently identified a new treatment that could starve cancer cells and cause a patient's immune system to attack tumors in the pancreas. Dr. Edna Kukerman is an associate professor in the Cancer Biology Program and co-director of the Marvin and Conchetta Greenberg Pancreatic Cancer Institute at Fox Chase Cancer Center. Dr. Kukerman begins by telling us, part of the challenge in treating pancreatic cancer is that early symptoms are often mistaken as common gastrointestinal conditions. So by the time a patient is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, it's often very late. And that makes it very challenging to treat these patients because they are advanced in their disease. Adding to the challenge is the unique biology of pancreatic cancer. Well, the amount of pancreatic cancer itself is relatively small. A significant portion of the organ is often affected by the disease. Thereby making it difficult for treatment drugs to actually reach the cancer cells themselves. And then... The final reason is the only way we have today to truly cure a small amount of patients is doing surgery. And patients that are diagnosed late don't have that option. Another contributing factor to the challenge is the presence of fibrotic tumors in the pancreas. Fibrotic tumors are not the same as fibrous tumors, commonly known as sarcomas. Don't confuse fibrotic 
tumors with tumors that are fibrous, known as sarcomas. Sarcomas are originated from connective tissue cells. Pancreatic cancer is not originated from those type of cells. Over 90% of cases of pancreatic cancers are originated by cells that are in charge of generating and secreting pancreatic digestive enzymes. But while not made of connective tissue cells, the cells that do make up fibrotic tumors in the pancreas cause other challenges. In pancreatic cancer, the normally current amount of connective tissue cells undergo an expansion in the progression of this cancer. It's almost as if the organ undergoes a perpetual wound healing reaction and recruitment of non-cancerous cells. This is almost like fibrotic scar. It's a reaction that expands and takes over big portions of the organ. Where in the pancreas do fibrotic tumors occur? She says it's tricky because... It is like asking to address the chicken and egg question. There are some cases in which the organ becomes fibrotic first. Like in the case of severe chronic pancreatitis, the entire organ can become fibrotic. And a chronically fibrous organ presents increased risk for developing pancreatic cancer. In these cases, the fibrous reaction will be almost taking over the entire organ. Compared to other cases... Where the fibrosis, despite eventually taking over a significant portion of the organ, is more localized to the actual cancerous lesion. So the amount of this fibrous reaction is not necessarily particular to pancreatic cancer. But pancreatic cancer typically includes a significant amount of this fibrous reaction known as desmoplasia. It's this fibrotic reaction, or desmoplasia, that make the cancer so difficult to treat. This desmoplastic reaction can cause a collapse of vessels, and these will prevent drugs from reaching the cancer cells. It gets even more complicated because attempts to eliminate this fibrotic reaction can either not benefit the patients at all, or in some cases, they can make it worse. In other cases, the fibrotic reaction can actually benefit some patients. For example, researchers where I work have pioneered use of treatment prior to surgery and found that fibrosis expansion triggered by responses to therapy ahead of surgery can correlate with an improvement in patient prognostics. And so, it's a double-edged sword. Where fibrosis can play both tumor-promoting and tumor-restricting roles. So better understanding both pro- and anti-tumor functions of the fibrosis at the immediate vicinity of the cancer cells could help us perhaps harness their natural anti-tumor functions and we could then attempt to inhibit only the functions that promote tumor development and progression. Next, tumors undergoing this fibrotic reaction contain what are known as cancer-associated fibroblast or CAF cells. And her research focuses keenly on these calf cells. Calf cells can generate and expand the fibrotic reaction. So the calf overproduction of dense bundles of collagen fibers, or this fibrosis I'm talking, not only blocks drug access to cancer cells, but also provides a biochemical and physical immunosuppressed environment that can discourage anti-tumor immune cells from eliminating the cancer cells. So how do calf cells in fibrotic tumors block drugs from reaching cancer cells in the pancreas? Through her research, she and her team have discovered the presence of a protein called Netrin G1 in calf cells. Prior to this discovery... Netrin G1 has been mostly studied in the brain. It is a protein that is localized at the synaptic end of neurons. 
and it's needed to stabilize synaptic connections. And there are other known expressions of Netrin G1 in the brain. We know that Netrin G1 is particularly expressed in excitatory neurons known as glutamatergic neurons. And we also know that mutations in this protein have been associated with syndromes where either overexpression or loss of this protein can be seen, for example, red schizophrenia, Alzheimer's, and many others. So it is good to prevent all of these syndromes and to maintain mood and memory. But prior to her and her team's study of calf cells in fibrotic tumors of the pancreas... The role of Netrin G1 in cancer has never been studied. It has never even been suggested, the role for Netrin G1 in calf or in cancer in general. So with the discovery of Netrin G1 protein in the pancreas, how does this contribute to the growth and spread of pancreatic cancer? We found that calves expressing Netrin G1, but not calves that lack Netrin G1, provide cancer cells with nutrition and have the ability to sustain cancer cells under starving conditions. Wait, the Netrin G1 is actually feeding and protecting the cancer cells rather than the patient? got it exactly right. I guess the simplest way to say this is that tasks expressing Netrin G1 support cancer nutrition in the protection of cancer cells and discouraging anti-tumor immunity. And this is a new discovery based on her team's research? Yes, very much so. <laughs> you sense Dr. Kukerman's excitement about additional discoveries from this groundbreaking Netrin G1 research as well. That while Netrin G1 loss does not change the amount of fibrosis deposited by calf, it does change the type of different fibrous material that is being produced by the cells. These no longer serve as an added source of nutrition. So this nutrition is coming by soluble factors, but also by this coupled material. And then secondary to this, we also discovered that calf lack Netrin G1 have the ability to stop inhibiting and in some cases even promote anti-tumor immune response. And it's possible Netrin G1 protein expression in calf could be feeding and protecting cancer cells in other parts of our body. We have not carefully looked in other epithelial cancers known to include fibrotic desmoplastic reactions. But we do have evidence to suggest that Netrin G1 expression in calf could play a role in cancers other than pancreas cancer. And more specifically thinking about pancreatic cancer, we observed some variation in calf expression of Netrin G1. In fact, we were able to demonstrate a correlation between high levels of Netrin G1 expressed calf and patients with poor outcomes. How has the discovery of Netrin G1 in calf cells changed the arc of research for pancreatic cancer going forward? I hope it will change the way patients are treated in the future. I can only speak for myself, of course, but this discovery has profoundly changed the way my team thinks of pancreatic cancer and the types of biomarkers and treatments that we believe are needed in this disease. We hope one day it will be a biomarker. This one has the potential to be, but we're far off. But hopefully far closer to finding answers as she continues to study the expression of Netrin G1 in calf cells. I'm committed to continuing this research, especially because literally nothing outside the brain is known about the signaling of this protein. And the few discoveries thus far suggest we have only uncovered this huge signaling new iceberg. Based on the successful blocking of Netrin G1, how could changing the function of this protein positively impact treatments for pancreatic cancer? We found that Netrin G1 
function stands on top of various mechanisms, including metabolic regulation and the ability to secrete factors that promote tumor growth, as well as factors that inhibit anti-tumor immunity. So to inhibit all of these functions, we would probably need a combination of drugs that can hit each of the main signaling pathways that govern all of these functions. Yet we saw that by simply blocking metrin-G1 function in CAS, we actively and simultaneously can block all of these functions. If such a drug was to be developed, it should have the potential to make a real difference, especially if combined with immune targeting or with metabolic altering drugs. Which could, hypothetically speaking, impact the survival rate for pancreatic cancer patients significantly. I am very optimistic, but it will take some time before we could test these types of drugs in patients. But until then, Dr. Kukerman wants us to know that working collaboratively with others continues to bring us closer to better outcomes for pancreatic cancer patients. Physicians and scientists really care and are working very, very hard behind the scenes to make a significant difference. Multidisciplinary approaches are, to me, the way to go. There is no other way. So teamwork makes the dream work. I could not have said it better myself. You completely got it. That's all the time we have for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Susan Tsai and Dr. Edna Kukerman. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show. And I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. So make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of this or any of our shows on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.